seven, six, six, Welcome to Our Talk, a podcast on the history, theory, and practice of international relations. I'm your host, Yolan Kluger. This week, I spoke with Professor Bartholomew Sparrow. Professor Sparrow is a professor of political science at the University of Texas at Austin. He is the author of numerous books, including The Strategist, Brent Scowcroft, and The Call of National Security, which was the subject of our conversation this week. This conversation was quite interesting, as General Brent Scowcroft was extremely influential in the development of national security process and the creation of foreign policy more broadly. One last note, if you enjoy my podcast, I would love it if you would leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as it helps others find the show. Thank you. How did studying Jacob Burkhardt affect your political science thinking? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't have many people who ask me about Jakob Burkhardt, together Swiss historian and the and the uh, sort of colleague and really a mentor of Nietzsche's for a while. It's sort of I was interested in political theory. That's why I studied him. And he had someone who hadn't been studied very much. And so I think what it did is it made me appreciate that if I wanted to add value to the scholarly record. I think I could do a lot more by looking at the sort of margins of, of what received political science and historians' attention. So looking at folks who were still had a lot to contribute, but maybe hadn't quite got the attention that if you think about their ideas and their influence, that at least that if you study them, that you think, well, they really, they merit, they warrant more. I think another way too, I never did, for all sorts of reasons, I never did an honors thesis in college. And so I never wrote, I mean, I did term papers to be sure, but I never did a honors paper. And so I, so believe it or not, doing my master's degree, which ended up being over a hundred pages, that was the most daunting thing I'd done up to that time. And to, and this is a time, this will date me, where I had to do drafts on a, on a, a manual typewriter. So I was doing these drafts of the manual typewriter, literally cutting and taping pieces together and editing. And to make sense of this fellow who wrote you know, many books and had um, huge volumes of correspondence. And I knew just a little bit of German, so I had to work almost exclusively in translation. But to bring sort of closure and to feel like I got a sense of the man and his life and I could interpret it to what it signified in the, to what it meant for our study of government and society and politics. That was, that was very satisfying. And as I said, a big challenge. And so later on, when I came to write my dissertation and my first book and subsequent books, that still remains the largest sort of mental hurdle that I, that I had and will, will have no doubt. And so that was kind of cool. So I think it, what it did is it really forced me to challenge myself and do something. And then so I haven't been afraid to take sort of marginal figures or work on these insular cases and other things that don't maybe don't get the attention they deserve and then sort of suss it out, write it up, and then move on to something else. Burkhardt was known for his cultural history. Did that affect your sort of political history of Scowcroft or other work? I don't think directly. I mean, because what was interesting about his cultural history is he was very keen to point out that cultural history very much depended on the regime and the international relations 
of say Switzerland or a, a Germany or of a France or England, you name it. And so cultural history is in some ways at the sufferance of political history. And so what he did do, and I thought this was pretty neat, is he had a philosophy that the that history doesn't get better or worse. And so in that sense, he was not a progressive, but neither was he despairing like Schopenhauer. Rather, he just says, well, it is. And you can say that times of great oppression can also lead to great creativity or times of chaos and war can lead to, lead to wonderful works of art or, 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 or instances of courage or leadership. So he was very kind of Catholic and broad about, about understanding the range of human contributions. And I think this is one of the things I, I, that draw, drew me to him. And he says that politics is ultimately you know, that's for societies to function. And so people can, can live and, and create and to do and to, you know, to, to meet their, meet their needs and then, and then go on and do what they, they, they would like to do. And that the politics of people study the, like Nietzsche, especially, but others study the great men of history and looked at them oftentimes like a, you know, Charlemagne or, or a Diocletian or others, Roman emperors or, 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 or kings, and they looked at them and says, well, you know, look, they might be great, but they also cause immense amount of damage and cause immense amount of suffering. And so he kind of appreciated the, the, the ambiguity and the two-sidedness of, of history. And so I, I kind of liked that. And, and so, you know, we think of times in our, our world where you think, oh, the, oh, the depression was horrible, or the World War II era was really hard, or the 60s were in turmoil, but there's, there's always other things going on that are that are wonderful. In fact, there's a new book called The Free World by Louis Menan about this, about kind of the Cold War and how much creativity it created in the United States and also to an extent in Western Europe and France. And, and so it's it, it, we have to appreciate the kind of the multiplicity of the of the human species. And so, yeah, so I think it, it led me to appreciate Scowcroft because one of the things he did do very well was to what I call his multivocality. He was able to wear these different hats. He was able to appeal to the intelligence community, to military leaders, to businessmen, to members of Congress, to journalists, because he had these various skills and he was very expert, knew history. And because he was from a business background and because he was had intelligence clearance and was an army officer, was in the Army Air Corps coming out of West Point. He had all these abilities that he could use to then sort of span these different communities and agencies in Washington and, and across the U.S. And I think that's that's not so dissimilar from kind of this 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 point I was making about Burkhardt and appreciating, appreciating the Sort of, so the vastness and richness of the human experience. You're a trained political scientist, and this is a biography. And normally biography is written by historians or even not necessarily uh, academic historians, somewhat looked down upon. So what has been the response from your political science colleagues with your biography? I think they've been receptive. I think they've been receptive because they realize I'm studying something that is very hard to, to study empirically. And that is, how do you study decision-making in the National Security Council with the president and the National Security Advisor, Secretary of State, maybe others weighing in at the time, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Treasury, others. And how does that happen? And as you might appreciate, this varies from administration to administration, and it can be more stable 
or less stable as it was under our former president and under Reagan had something like eight national security advisors, one for like a two week period, it was an interim. So you have all these and what you have with this national security advisor and you have this change in the presidential leadership that he realized that he could contribute and participate. So, so they understood that this was sort of a small end. You're dealing with a small group of people in the White House and how this works. And they, I think they appreciate that if you're doing involved a lot of interviews, involved a lot of archival work, involved a lot of a great deal of secondary work, including uh, journalism. And they realized if I wanted to get a handle on this, then it makes made sense for me to use uh, Scowcroft as this lens or this entry point to this world of politics since he was involved more or less formally in about six different administrations. He worked under several of them, Nixon, Ford, and George H.W. Bush, but also worked very closely with George W. Bush, especially in his second term, and also, but also in his first term officially, he was the head of the the foreign president's foreign intelligence board, but also advised um, Obama and worked worked unofficially with Reagan, or he, he was the head of several important commissions and was consultant oftentimes, although he never was brought into the house as he as he calls it. So he had this experience, and I think because of that, because of the, I think I was trying to do a very careful and thorough job, and because it was a study that you really couldn't get through empirical study that is of some large data sets, then this is the kind of work that's necessary. It's a, what you might call qualitative interpretive work, which isn't all that common in political science, but it does happen. And, and I think they, they appreciate it. How did you maintain the balance between the historical scholarship, but also sort of casting a light on the NSC process and the more political science work within that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was, I think, my training and my one of my fields was international relations when I was in grad school in Chicago. And I think I kind of knew that I wanted to discuss how the National Security Council worked. I wanted to discuss the organization of the White House. I wanted to discuss the changes in the in, in new agencies, government regimes, the US's new position in the world what happens with the end of the Cold War, wars and all those things. And I wanted to uh, delve into them and explain um, for the reader, because it was made, it was um, written for sort of the attentive reader, mil- military folks, journalists, uh, political scientists or historians to be sure, but also people who are sort of curious about U.S. foreign policy and Scowcroft himself and the role of the military and government and so forth. And so I, 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 th- I think I had enough sort of intuitively or innately that I was going to cover the things that students of international relations and foreign policy are going to be interested in. And then not only say the rest, but a lot of it then was saying, well, what happened and what did he do and what were his, what were his choices and what were his, how did he proceed through this process? through these different crises or through these uh, different um, administrations. And so it was kind of a question then of, of so if the book itself contains, I'll sort of take uh, sh- short dives, for example, in the you know, history of Afghanistan or talk about, you know, this was going on in China during prior to the Nixon administration or, or between the Nixon and the George H.W. Uh, Bush uh, regimes. And so I'll have to, or this is what the NSC did, or this is how the White House developed and why when he was manager 
of the White House uh, military office. He was the in charge of all the different branches that work in the in the in the executive branch. So this includes the Signal Corps, the Medical Corps, the transportation team, and the mess, the White House mess, the medical office, Bethesda Naval Hospital, all this, all that stuff. So most of the workers in the White House are there by virtue of the different services providing them. So there's only a small staff that actually is funded out of the presidential budget. Most of the rest of it is attached to different branches of the military. So he would supervise those things. And, and that's kind of, and that developed in, to a great degree under uh, Johnson and Nixon. So I kind of look back at the development of this and how you get, one of the things I was just talking to someone the other day about was about the idea that the White House is this five-star hotel and that it's very posh and almost monarchical. This really dates from Nixon and Johnson. Before that, Camp David was kind of a rustic camp and you know Truman would walk down with just the uh, Secret Service up and down the, you know, in Pond, Pennsylvania Avenue and elsewhere in Washington. And, you know, Kennedy would go up to its compound in Hyannisport. And so things were much more informal, much more casual. And to make it more, you know, I mean, that also couples with the growth of the Cold War and worries about terrorism and all sorts of things. But a lot of this was just choices by these two presidents, both who came from fairly modest backgrounds to say, okay, well, we really want to have this uh, a swell place. And that's, that's kind of continued. How did Scowcroft develop his bureaucratic skills? So he's noted for his ability to organize the national security process and staff. So was it just a matter of spending more years working or was it a certain insights that he had? I think a couple of people were really very influential. Well, a background and then the two people who were influential. The background is that he was always very ambitious. So I talked to him about, you know, why didn't he stay as the chair of the political science department at the Air Force Academy? He was that temporarily. He could have stayed on. You know, he has very bright students, a great place to be, Colorado Springs. Why wouldn't he stay there? He says, well, I wanted more challenges, even though he'd done a lot to put this political science department in the Air Force Academy. It was just brand new, had barely opened, and to put it on solid ground and sort of get it going and initiated several reforms in that department. But he said he wanted more. And uh, so he's ambitious. And I think he wanted to be, he said he wanted to be a part of policymaking. He wanted to have his, to be able to weigh in on issues of, of US national security and, and the place of the United States in the world. So he had this ambition. And then the two people who were very interesting, one was when he was working in the Pentagon, he came under the wing of a guy named General Yudkin, who was, who was a brilliant Air Force general who was part of, did, was very involved with nuclear weapons and strategic systems. One of the co-authors of the, or co-creators of the PSYOP, of the Single Integrated Operational System. And so he was this intellectual who'd never flown, never been a pilot, never been a, been a line officer. And he, but he was a brilliant bureaucrat and was very strategic, thought ahead, and see what he was able to, he was able to, um, Scowcroft, that is, learned a lot from him, appreciated how to work with the different parts of the Pentagon, different parts of the defense industry, to work with the White House, and all these things. And he helped promote him to work with, with eventually he worked at the, in the Joint Chiefs of Staff Office before he went to the White House to work with Nixon as military assistant to the president. The other person was once he got to the White House is, and this is what actually hit two of his, 
Air Force generals hoped would happen is that hope, they hoped he would, he would get the attention of Henry Kissinger. They knew that Al Haig was leaving as General Haig was leaving as Kissinger's deputy, and they hoped that Scowcroft, as military assistant to the president, would grab uh, Kissinger's attention because he was so capable, because he knew his history. He had a and government. He you know had this PhD at, from Columbia at the time, and had taught at West Point. So and was very hard worker, very savvy, very they, they really trusted him. And sure enough, Kissinger um, liked him. They were kind of equals. They remained fr friends until Scowcroft died last year. And what uh, Kissinger trained him was, A, Kissinger had this great strategic thinking. He's also very savvy politically, sometimes too savvy because he was close to Nixon, and, but, but very good at uh, working with the press. And so he came to appreciate sort of how to sort of how to handle things and where kind of how to think long term, to think strategically, to think creatively sometimes. And both of these folks, Yudkin and, and uh, Kissinger, I think, allowed him then when he became, and then of course he was deputy under Kissinger for, you know, over two, two and a half years. And so he could learn from him. And then he took over national security advisor himself in 75 for a little over a year under Ford. And then of course, once again, under George H.W. Bush. When he was going into the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, how did he go about envisioning this new National Security Council process and the different committees, uh, the deputies community, which was new and I think, and very important at the time. How did he go about envisioning this totally new process? I don't think he envisioned it. I mean, I think what it was, was that he wanted, I mean, what, what, what he knew was important is to have a coordinated White House and to have the agreement and voluntary cooperation of the State Department, of the Pentagon, of intelligence, of figuring out how we are going to publicize this politically, how we're going to work with Congress, all that had to be on the same page. And so he would sometimes this would involve meetings with him, Cheney and Baker, Cheney as uh, defense secretary, Baker as secretary of state. Sometimes it would involve more usually it would involve the deputies committee, as you said, they said, well, we don't need to handle this if we have smart deputies all at the same level, who are working on the different aspects of policy that are involved in any one issue area, then they would say, okay, they can hash it out. And then, but the, the fact that the principles got along with each other and that George Bush himself was very strong on foreign policy and national security. Remember, he'd been ambassador to the UN, he'd worked in China, he'd been um, you know, vice president under, under Reagan for eight years. Because of these things, they had, a, they had a president who was very supportive, and the president and Scowcroft spent a lot of time in the, in the uh, interim between after the election and taking office to figure out who do we want in the different roles. I mean, he asked Baker first, then he, then he came to Scowcroft and said, well, Scowcroft first wanted to be Secretary of Defense, and then, but then he got a national security advisor again, and it turns out that that was good, and he was glad he had that decision. But anyway, because of that, then they were, it was a pretty united group. I mean, one person put it the other way, said it was a very secretive group, but that just means that they were able to keep control over information. They didn't have all these leaks that we see in Trump and Nixon and other administrations because there wasn't a lot of infighting. There was some, but, but much less than other administrations. So, so this is to say that, that they would have standing committees and they'd create them as need be. 
and they can, I mean, he can spend all his time doing meetings. And so if he could delegate, you know, delegate or Bob Gates, who was his deputy, but people called him Tweedledum and Tweedledee because they were almost interchangeable because Gates himself was so knowledgeable and experienced and capable that this then allowed them to not only delegate, but then create committees like, for example, during the Gulf War or other occasions, handling the Germany and the unification of Germany or the end of the Soviet Union, they could create ad hoc committees as need be according to the crises at the time. And because of this, I think this mutual trust, and as one person said, you know, they, it was incredibly hard work, but it was the most funding together in his whole career as working with these guys. And so, you know, there's something to be said for people of the similar age and similar experience and who get along and who you know, have known each other for a long time. They're all pretty much at the peaks of their careers and didn't have anything to prove anymore. So they're kind of free to, to really to, to, to work for the best interests of the country and not be worrying about the next appointment or, or office they would like to run for. Weren't a lot of the similar, the same types of people involved also in the second Bush administration and what sort of change in terms of their interactions, if it ran less smoothly or if it did not? Yeah, it went less smoothly. And I think the, I think what happened is that you have, I mean, so early on, you have, you know, you have 9-11. And without going too much into it, Colin Powell, who you've, who you've just read a lot about, was kind of on the outside. And then you have Rumsfeld and Cheney, Cheney as vice president, who actually had set up kind of his own national security system in his vice presidential office and had all these closed door meetings and was you know, very capable. And then Rumsfeld, in the Pentagon and Rumsfeld and Cheney were very, very close and had worked together, of course, in the Ford administration, Rumsfeld not in the Bush administration, first Bush administration Cheney had. And then you have a generation younger, you have Condoleezza Rice, who was very bright, very capable. But I think when 9-11 happened and when they decided, well, what are we going to do about this? That Rumsfeld and Cheney as these people who were, I mean, before that, I think she'd spent only three years in Washington. So However bright she was, she was a generation younger and had much less experience dealing with, well, none really realistically compared to what Cheney and Rumsfeld had. And so I think Bush turned to them and they gained the upper hand at a time of crisis like this because they were the Washington hands. And she was caught between, in some ways she, she identified with, with them and in some cases she identified with, with Powell, the result was that there wasn't any kind of unified front that could, or unified con, or consensus that could then go to the president and say, this is what we'd advise you to do. Because remember, he'd been president, president governor of Texas, and yes, he'd worked for his father in a political role in the, in the Bush uh, senior White House, but really hadn't been involved in foreign policy at all. So this, for him, this was not unlike Clinton and Obama, this is pretty new ground for him. And so I think he really turned that and there was, there was, there wasn't the, the, someone with kind of the gravitas or the, or the kind of um, seniority or a kind of attitude who was able then to kind of ride herd on these things and say, look, what are we doing? What are, what's our end game? How many troops do we, can we go in there into Iraq so inexpensively? And if we go into Afghanistan and Tora Bora and try to get Osama bin Laden. How are we going to do this? What happens if we don't find him? I and mean, there wasn't that kind of quality control about the process and about the plans that Scowcroft was brilliant at doing. And that Bush had enough experience, and the senior Bush knew sort of to look for. And then 
of course, Baker is a you know, master politician and very tactically savvy. And so he was and Cheney were able to, to work together in a way that just didn't didn't hold in the subsequent administration. Because you're right, they had almost the same people, but with very, very different results. And at the time, Scowcroft was, you know, an outlier who spoke out against the war, but now pretty much everyone agrees that this is a huge mistake. And that uh, I think that was this this dysfunctionality of this of the national security team under in the first first Bush administration had a lot to do with it. Previous guest of the podcast, Professor Peter Spiro, served worked in the national security staff in the Clinton administration, and it's noted that he found it striking about the access to intelligence that one gets was certainly less constrained than it was in the Department of State, and also that there were so few people for each department or for each area relative to the Department of State where it worked previously. So is that necessarily a benefit? Was that good that they had fewer people, maybe more coordinated decision-making, or is it bad, like less information, less ability to make better decisions? Was he talking about the uh, Bush administration or the Clinton administration itself? He worked in the Clinton administration, right. but there were right. still, there were, I believe there were even less people in the Bush administration. Yeah, there were the less. Security people, staff, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Well, I think a couple things. One is that they're very careful. Remember, I talked about them planning in this interim period, talking in, 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 the, in Camp David, long walks and figuring out who they wanted. So they're very careful at who they had. And there's some movement as they tweak that if things people weren't working out. So one is getting quality people. The other thing, and I was just talking to someone the other day about this, is that Scowcroft was very good at soliciting folks' opinions. So you might be in a meeting with, say, a half a dozen people or a dozen people, and there may be some, everyone's going to be very skilled and have things to bring to the table, but it may be have some people who are really, you know, very vocal and, and, and speak out a lot more and other people are maybe more reticent or shy or whatever. And he was very good at eliciting everybody's opinion and sometimes going outside of that and listening to academics or people, you know, talking to other parts of the government. So I think it's, not only the small amount of people, but it's getting the right people. And then depending on the issue, figuring out, well, how do we get a larger number of voices? How do we get more voices to make sure we get this right? Because there can be groupthink, as you and I'm sure many of the audience know, about where people are just saying things that reaffirm what their, what they, their uh, assumptions and what their plans are. And I think that's really what happened with the um, attacking Iraq in 2003. It became sort of just an answer for a lot of people's troubles in different ways. And it was never really kind of thought through. How did you go about understanding the NSC process from the outside? Was it just a matter of interviewing the different participants or was there um, something else? Well, there are several really good books. One guy is a guy named John Burke. Another's by David Rothkopf. There's uh, one's by, uh, oh, there's several of them. A couple of people worked in the Reagan administration. So there are a lot of good books. So I did kind of books on that just to uh, uh, familiarize myself with the history and the different different dynamics across different administrations. And then it's also talking to people and talking to people, as you suggested, and reading scholarship, reading scholarship about particular administrations or particular presidencies at particular issues that come up, say Panama or say, you know, Germany and, and reuniting with NATO. So there's a lot of books that kind of cut into my work. So all those things allowed me to get a sense of some of the tensions and choices that were, that were there. I mean, for example, Condi Rice and Zolik at the University of, of Virginia have a very good, good book on the, on the, on, on European politics 
early on in the Bush administration. And so there's lots of resources there and, and many of them talk about particular key moments and where people st stood and how they relate to each other. Having said that, I don't feel I don't have, and then of course there the, there's records of the NSC meetings, and so you can have some of those meetings are 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 available, and you could look at sort of what actually was was going on, and so you can get you can get a sense of now there are hundreds and hundreds, and and I couldn't study the whole universe of U.S. foreign policy, so there's a lot of things I really touched on very lightly, if at all, because they weren't they didn't get a lot of attention from the principals in the Bush administration. But so there's a lot of stuff happening that, that I couldn't cover. But it's, I think it's kind of a triangulation kind of go through. And but I can't say that I have expert knowledge of all the meeting dynamics or how these things played out. And, and certainly you read accounts and to this day and you have different people who are they'll omit certain things. They'll include other things. They'll you know, there's so if you just read memoirs or biographies, or what have you of other people, you, you'll get a different understanding. And that's why it's important for a scholar or a or his, you know, historian to to think. Well, let's let's look at this from as many um, lenses as possible because because people remember things differently and 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 sometimes even the record itself doesn't include everything. What was Scowcroft's relation to American democracy? So a lot of the realists, Henry Kissinger, I mean, thinkers, Hans Morgenthau certainly had a, a more skeptical view coming out of Weimar Germany. And Scowcroft was American, lived in America. So did he have the same sort of negative view or way of manipulating public opinion, or was he in terms of his view on democracy? You know, I think he was, I think he ultimately had faith in democracy, but he also knew that it was, it was important to communicate and to, if the administration was going to do something that it needed public support. So I don't want to say he was cynical but I do think he was aware that public opinion was malleable and that other people, other actors or groups or parties would be saying things in the press or using surrogates speeches or writing things in, in journals or in op-eds to communicate points of view. And so if that was the way politics were playing out in Washington, that was imperative then for the government to get its side across. And I thought it was necessary to invade Panama, or they thought it was necessary to evict Kuwait from Iraq, or if they thought it was necessary to, to move very quickly and to reunite Germany within the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, then they had to make that case. And they couldn't just assume that because they're the, the, the White House and the president and his, and his top staff or appointees, that that was automatically going to prevail. So they had to work at it. So that's is why you have, you know, the Office of Communications, you have congressional liaison officers, you have others who are working to communicate. So, yeah, that would be my answer. Charles Adele, in his review of your book, noted the resiliency of Scowcroft, that he left a almost fatal aircraft injury and was still able to live his life. And he stayed through the Nixon uh, in Ford administrations and still kept going, kept working. So how did he do it? And what accounts for that resiliency? I think two things. One is kind of physical stamina. He was a track star in, in high school and he stayed fit. He was, uh, he won a, a prize for a handgun shooting when he was working in the Pentagon. 
and he's always kept very fit and he worked out in West Point and kept up to that. And he'd run around his neighborhood at like midnight or 11 o'clock in the evening and, you know, and do, you know, sub eight mile paces. And so this is in his fifties and sixties. So one is I think physically, and I, I think that's very important. I think what's even more important is that he was, came from a very supportive environment of these people who are deeply rooted in the Mormon community, who were, he was raised in a very, by his very happy household. And people have told me that, well, people say they have a happy upbringing, they're, they're hiding something. But in his case, I think that's pretty true. And that he was the youngest of three kids and the, and the only son. And so I think he was doted on. And I felt, I think felt very loved, very secure. Now, of course, when he goes to West Point, he gets, you know, hazed and he's all alone. And it's, you know, it's, well, it's hell on the Hudson as one person termed it. And so it, it's so, but he has enough resources internally before that to survive that and then to thrive in the military environment. So I think that's one. So those are two things I'd say is this emotional and psychological fortitude and this kind of gyroscope and then this, this physical stamina and fitness. And I mean, there's times in his fifties and sixties where they have these Aspen um, strategy group meetings in, in Aspen. And, you know, he's, he's, he's at the top of whatever mountain they're climbing ahead of these 30 and 40 year olds, because he's just uh, so fit. And so it's, so it really is quite remarkable, but I think, but I think the other thing beyond that is that he was very, I think he was not particularly political. I mean, he was always very fair, very straightforward and very, and always kept the door open. So you say, well, okay, I might disagree with someone at a certain time, but tomorrow or the next week, that person might be my on my alley, be needed as an ally or might be my alley in the next battle. And so he let bygones be bygones. And so he didn't get caught up in sort of ego battles or, you know, so he would lose out a lot of stuff, but that didn't matter. He'd say, well, here we are. And if it was, of course, bad enough, then he would resign, but it never came to that. So I think this is um, the fact that he was, he could remain in play because now Kissinger, even though he remained very influential, um, you know, after he left the Ford administration or after the Ford administration, you know, he burned a lot of bridges and no one wanted to bring him officially into any White House. Now he played a role on some commissions on the side and he advised informally, but they didn't want him. But he, Scowcroft really sort of was, was, I think, very well respected by Democrats as well as Republicans and by, as I said, all these different groups within the Washington community who, because he could speak to them because of his talents and his diverse uh, background. And then one more thing, because that's a good, great question, is that because of how he was and because of, I think, being respectful of other people, is that he was... Um, people wanted to work with him and wanted to promote him. And, you know, he looked at his military evaluation forms and efficiency reports, and they just talk, many of them write about, they just don't know what his upward, upward limit is. And they think, you know, he would certainly, you know, become a full general, but he, he resigned as a three-star general because when he was took over as national security advisor under four, because he didn't think people didn't, he didn't want people to think that he was serving two masters, the Pentagon and the civilian leadership in the White House. And so he said, I better not do this, even though he could have, which is what George Marshall did and Al Haig did, and also Colin Powell. Going to the closing questions, who is a scholar who had a big impact on your intellectual upbringing? I think that's, a, that's tough. I think one who comes to mind is one of the people on my dissertation committee, a guy named Ira Katznelson, who was actually trained as a historian at Cambridge, 
Cambridge University, but then became they then became a political scientist, and he would write about all sorts of things. He would write about urban politics, about Marxism, about affirmative action, how it pertained to 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 whites. He'd write about foreign policy, write about Congress, write about the New Deal. So I think the and I remember reading his work early on in grad school and my career, and he would cite really obscure things from way back. And, and he wouldn't sort of be caught in the battle where you just cite the known familiar suspects, which a lot of academics just, you know, will cite things that everybody else has cited. But he really read far and wide. So I think his wide reading and his the, the openness of his mind to different questions and issues that were out there and not letting sort of convention determine what he did. And then when he did things, do them incredibly well. So I think he's been an inspiration, although I haven't, you know, he was later president of the American Political Science Association. So I, and, you know, I think he's now provost at, at Columbia. So I'm not going to have his career, but certainly someone I very much. Who is a younger scholar people should pay more attention to or younger scholars? You know, I don't have a good answer for that. I think I talked talk to you about reading back. I would say if you're a historian or what kind of political scientist you are, or for that matter, what kind of historian, is just to is just kind of to look beyond the people that get the headlines and say, well, what what is what am I studying? What is the question? And you know, people in classical Greece or in the Middle Ages, they weren't any smarter or stupider, if that's the word, more stupid than than we are today. But they just had the technology or they didn't have the resources at their fingertips or in libraries or so forth. But to think that we can't learn and that there weren't people who were doing terrific studies a century ago or two centuries ago is kind of is very much false. Now, yes, they're maybe not going to use the same kind of social science methods, but they might be asking this really good questions and they might have their own data that they do as well as they can with. So I think I would encourage people just to kind of read broadly and beyond the, the, the people that maybe they are already familiar with or know they should. How do you as a political scientist read the news in a way that's different from the standard haphazard way? I think two things. One is Yu Thant, who was, I think, the first or second Secretary General of the United Nations said that, you know, just skim the headlines. Most of the news doesn't affect you and you can't affect it. And I've tried to be even in this uh, era of, of clickbait is tried to be sort of not to get caught up as like, oh, I need to know this or that because that's what people are talking about around the water cooler. We're trying to be sort of say, okay, what are the leading stories? What's going on? And then if I need it for some reason, like for class, an example for class or for some paper I'm reading, then I can do a deep dive and I can go back to the news sources or if there's journal articles or or magazine uh, pieces or something, then I can go back to it. But to save my time and not to get caught up in everything. So that's kind of one thing is not feeling, okay, I got to read everything the New York Times prints, or I got to read everything the Wall Street Journal has. The other thing is that I try to triangulate. So I'll read The Guardian. I'll read the, as I mentioned, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I'll read the Washington Post. I'll look at what, you know, what PBS has and what they're featuring. And sometimes I'll listen to podcasts if they're related to a topic I'm interested in. So I think it's, it's a question of if there is something you're interested in or you want to or you have time, maybe you're out there on a walk and you want to listen to something rather than, or driving, for example. Then I think there's there's lots of sources out there and just kind of keep an open mind. I mean, the, 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 the implication from what I'm saying is that I'm sort of skeptical and I've 
written and studied the media and I teach the media, the media as an institution, is that all of the media outlets have points of view. And they're, they're companies that have people who are, who, are, who are employed and socialized principally for making money in a particular niche of our great economy. And so we have to be aware that owners and bosses have particular points of view. Now, they may not always be visible, but they're there. And if you study any news organization enough, you can kind of discern what they are. But what this means is that any one organization is going to have its, you know, its pet projects. It's going to have its blind points. It's going to be, you know, maybe not spin things a little bit. And sure, they're better and worse sources, depending on the news hole and how diligent their research is. But they're not going to be perfect and sometimes well short of perfect. And so that's why it's important to, again, beyond the headlines, if you want to have a broader sense of things, to read to read several other sources. And do current students know more than the Athenian students did in the time of the Peloponnesian War? I'm sure they know a lot more about their world, and, and thanks to the internet and social media, and certainly know a lot of things quicker. As I said, they're no smarter than them. And I suspect the things they learn, they're probably not as good as memorizing, and they're probably... Um, not as disciplined, so they're probably less able to concentrate. I think also that, well, I think, yeah, discipline, concentration, they're not smarter. They're, I mean, I was looking at high school tests and I think it was 1920, and the questions were hard. Now, of course, we have a lot fewer percentage of folks that are going to high school, much less college, but they're very hard. So I think their standards might've been higher. And so by the, because most people are gonna be adults by the time they're in their late teens or 20s, and now a lot of people are college or they're living at home and adulthood is really postponed now. And so I think people lived and of course their lifespans are a lot shorter. So I think there's things are more packed in. There's more, I think there's more stress. There's more, but also the worlds are much smaller. They're tinier. So those are some dimensions on which they differ. Professor Sparrow, thank you for being a part of IARC. Thank you for your questions. And thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to IR Talk. Again, if you enjoyed the episode, I would really appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. See you on the next episode.